Hey everyone, before we get started with the episode, I just wanted to say a quick thank you for listening. We're really excited to be starting up again and to bring you more great music from awesome artists. Uh, if you haven't already, you can follow us on Twitter at ADJ New Music and subscribe to Lexical Tones on iTunes. Um, if you like what you hear, think about giving us a rating and writing a review or just sharing an episode you liked on social media. That really helps us get this music out to more listeners. We have a great schedule of artists lined up and we're happy to welcome two new members to Adjective, Evan Williams and Ann Nykirk. And with that, enjoy the show. You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Emotional, direct, political. The music of Evan Williams draws from a wide range of influences such as romanticism, modernism, post-minimalism, and pop music, and has been performed across the country and internationally by groups such as the International Contemporary Ensemble, Quince Contemporary Vocal Ensemble, and Fifth House Ensemble. He has received commissions from the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, the Urban Playground Chamber Orchestra, and others. He recently completed his doctorate in composition at the University of Cincinnati with a cognate in orchestral conducting. He also holds degrees from Bowling Green State University and Lawrence University. He is currently the composer intern at Bennington College and on the faculty of the Walden School's Young Musicians Program. Evan is a brand new 2017 addition to the Adjective New Music Composer Collective. Evan, welcome to Adjective. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to join. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So I want to start by talking about your, um, we're just going to listen to a movement of it, but your piece called back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this piece was written for uh, the Quinn's Contemporary Vocal Ensemble, correct? Yes, it was. And you're using poetry of Emily Dickinson, which is a pretty popular poet for mm-hmm. composers, I think. Mm-hmm. So can, can you talk about what draws you particularly to Emily Dickinson's poetry? Yeah, we'll, we'll do. But before I tell you that, I will say originally for this piece for Quince, I wanted to uh, use Anne Waldman poetry. Are you familiar with Anne Waldman? Uh, she no. is a living poet and uh, very good. Uh, she's like a uh, sort of, I guess, I don't know if post-beat poet would be the correct term for it. Okay. Uh, she's not lumped in with Kerouac and other beat poets, but she's sort of uh, after that generation of beat poets. And uh, I sent her a couple of letters. I talked to her publisher. Her publisher thought it was a good idea to use her poem, um, uh, Putting Makeup on Empty Space, uh, but she never got back to me. And so uh, a composer knows, you know, uh, deadlines, they have to be met. (laughs) And so I I turned to my favorite dead poet, which is, of course, Emily Dickinson. Uh, For me, Dickinson's poetry, it's, uh, it's very interesting because it's sort of, it's on the cusp of like, romantic poetry and transcendentalism and maybe even just like even contemporary poetry there's um some of her phrasing some of her of course her um her uses of like uh punctuation and whatnot are quite modern for her time uh but her language is also quite beautiful and romantic in a way and so you sort of get the best of both worlds if you're a composer like me you can be sort of hip and modern with some with it sometimes but it also just gets to it uh, the emotion, just like, you know, folks like Shelley and Keats and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's why I like her poetry. The, the post beat 
poet <laughs> that you were that you were originally thinking about using is that a is that an era of uh like poetry or even just history that you're that you're kind of into uh sort of uh i am i will say i'm sort of fascinated with the whole um you know, counterculture of the 60s and 70s. Of course, the opera Jonestown takes place in that culture. Yeah, we'll uh, get to that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but really, it's just her poetry that I uh, am very interested in. I, I have considered maybe looking into the rights for William Carlos Williams and, and poets uh-huh. like that. Uh, but this poem, uh, along with another one of her poems, really struck me when I first read it in college. And mm-hmm. so I was really hoping to be able to set it for Quince. Uh, it would have been a completely different piece than what called back turned out to be right uh, but uh obviously uh i think you can't go wrong with dickinson's poetry it might be a safe choice but it's always you know it's it always works for any sort of emotion you want so what are the what's the general theme of this of this poem called back so the the call the piece is actually three poems and they're all about death <laughs> and uh oh, and well dickinson, yeah okay yeah you know a nice light <laughs> topic and Lee Dickinson you might know uh was actually sort of obsessed with death um with death rather she grew up not too far from a cemetery um and uh you know in that time death was you know in a with a close family member even more common than it is today just because the healthcare isn't you know what it is today life expectancies uh, are shorter yes yes she had a lot of uh death in her in her life um and the words called back if you go and visit the dickinson homestead i actually got the chance to do it not too long ago those words are uh etched into her our tombstone in amherst uh massachusetts and also she used those words they were the only two words in a letter the last letter she ever wrote uh to two of her cousins it just says, Little Cousins Called Back, Emily. Uh, and so that's why this the piece has this title. And each of the three poems uh, has something to do uh, with uh, with death. Um, in terms of uh, kind of switching gears here, in terms of electronics, what are you... Because it, it is with electronics, correct? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and for electronics, what are you, what are you doing there? So there are a few things. Um, I didn't want it to be sort of like jarring in any way. So the effects are, they're all on the, uh, I like to put them in, there's the crunchy side of electronics and the pretty side. And these are all on sort of the the pretty side. There are no crunchy grains and stuff. There, I do use granulation, uh, but it's a lot of like um, spectral delays and and drones, uh, sounds of bells, uh, light like light and airy synth sounds uh so sort of that it's, it it um sort of enhances the the beauty of the poem and so it's funny because you would think these poems would be really dark and and sad when they're about death but they're actually pretty like hopeful um a little bit quirky too like the first one is called i felt a funeral in my brain right. uh so obviously there's it's it's quirky but it's not in any way dark and Originally, I wanted to write a dark and angry piece with this Waldman poetry, uh, but obviously I wanted to, uh, you know, write to the poetry I was actually using and do justice to it. Uh, And so I was inspired to, you know, do the electronics I did use for this. Yeah. And I think at the very beginning, you know, it's what are you using? Just like delays and reverb and. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that really like opens opens everything up but doesn't it's like it creates an atmosphere 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I was actually I was actually curious about this because you you set up that atmosphere and then there's some there's some sort of synth that comes in about uh, I don't know like a minute and a half yeah. two minutes uh-huh. in or something like that uh-huh. so and that seems to kind of disrupt this mm. general atmosphere so I'm wondering like is that was that because of uh, like a moment in the text that you really wanted to highlight or or like what I guess why does that synth come in at that particular point at that particular volume and at that timbre? That's a, that's a good point. I guess, um, you know, really, if anything, that the beautiful beginning is sort of added on, uh, to the piece rather than the synth. If, if I'm really thinking about it, the piece could start at that moment because, uh, before, before they're just saying the word I, uh, not, no other word. And then when the synth comes in, it's, I felt a funeral in my brain. And so oh, okay. sort of this intro is is really mysterious and, and beautiful uh, and then it gets loud. But then that synth does um, sort of signal the beginning of the actual recitation of the text. Um, right. So perhaps that's why. And of course, uh, somehow I had to get into this idea of the kept beating, 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 which is in the text. Um, uh, so, you know, I couldn't just keep this like beautiful uh, delay yeah. <laughs> going right. on the whole time. I had to transition somehow to more, um, you know, rhythmic things. Okay, I got it. Um, we've uh, we've had several um, of our previous composers on the podcast who have worked with Quince, and we've mm-hmm. featured pieces by Quince, and we actually had mm-hmm. Quince mm-hmm. on the podcast. So um, Quince seems to be very close to all of us. So what was yes. it like for you working with them? Oh, it was amazing. Um, I wanted to work with them since we were all at Bowling Green together, or at least with Amanda and Liz. Uh, Kaylee graduated before I was there. Uh, but, you know, Amanda and Liz, while we were all there together, they were always great examples of, like, um, great contemporary musicians. Um, and, you know, I always enjoyed both of their voices. They have very powerful uh, and beautiful voices. So I always wanted to work with them. And, of course... Um, their musicianship is incredible. Liz has perfect yeah. pitch and, and sings these <laughs> That does really, help as a singer. Yeah, these really hard, like, Babbitt and Seriajo pieces. And so, um, you know, it's it was a pleasure to work with them. And we did it at the Walden School, uh, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but uh, it's a very uh, collaborative and supportive environment. And so... Um, you know, the kids who study at the Walden School, my students actually got to sit in on our first rehearsal and, okay. um, which is, was kind of nerve wracking because I also had to make <laughs> tr- electronics work and, you know, didn't want to have to curse and have a breakdown in front of the children. Oh but. my God. That's always the worst. <laughs> the first rehearsal is exactly, like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it all worked and, um, and Quince, uh, they brought their full artistry and, you know, they said, you know, you wrote this, but perhaps can we, can we try this and this? And it, it of course works out because it's not. Uh, at least in the version we did in this recording is not fixed. It's uh, all interactive. So uh, yeah, it was a, a wonderful experience. So. Awesome. So we'll listen to that now. And um, again, this is Quince contemporary vocal ensemble and the piece is called called back. And we're listening to the first movement, which is called. I felt a funeral in my brain.
So let's talk about grime. Uh, can you describe the process of writing this work and the pre-composition that was involved in developing the materials? Yeah, yeah. So this is actually probably uh, the piece that I did the most pre-composition for. And this is also the biggest piece I wrote while I was studying with Marilyn Shrewd. So mm-hmm. that might give you some uh, thoughts into right, right. why <laughs> the pre-composition had to be so intense. She is very into... Uh, very intentional, you know, expression and pre-composition. So I'm glad uh, she really, uh, you know, encouraged me to do that. So uh, this was my first uh, foray into spectralism. And what I did is I got a sound of an electric guitar going through a distortion pedal. And I put it through Spear, uh, Klingvoss Spear, great program. And I, you know, analyzed, uh, you know, the spectrum and to see, you know, how to reproduce this sound with uh, a quartet of violin, viola, cello, and bass. And then uh, I got, uh, I did some notation stuff, and then I got four friends who play those instruments to play a part, different parts of the spectrum, uh, the overtone series, rather, um, with certain techniques. So sometimes I just said, okay, play, uh, play it normale, or I tried soltasto, try it sol pont, 
uh, try it behind the bow. Um, and then, of course, my favorite um, that works the best is a very loud sopaticello, very close to the bridge, like sometimes even just on top of the bridge playing. Like extreme salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the score, I, I didn't know what it was called at first. I just called it uh, sopant on bridge. But now I know normally people just call it molto sopanto cello. Uh-huh. So yeah. um, it's a great sound. And that even on its own just sounds like an electric guitar with distortion, especially in the viola. Um, and that led me to write another piece uh, inspired by electric guitar with Jimi Hendrix uh, as the inspiration. Um, so that was the, the process. It was, And then after getting those recordings, I put them together in Logic to see what was the best sort of reproduction of the sound of the electric guitar and then composed from there. Is pre-composition... Kind of. I mean, you you said when you were with uh, Marilyn Shrewd that she really, really stressed it. So is that yeah. something that is part of your normal composition process, or <laughs> no? Or was that... No, no. Okay. Uh, I will. I will freely admit to you. Sometimes uh, a piece just starts. I I have an idea, and usually, in, in fact, I have a title first. <laughs> um, yeah. So like the piece I'm writing now, the title, "The Quick and the Dead," came into my head. So I was like, "Boom! That's that's the piece." I open a finale file and start writing, and that's it. <laughs> but um, um, I I was glad for for that because I uh, you know I had all these graph paper you know you know symbols and stuff like that and charts. Uh, all every moment of the piece was mapped out before I actually started writing it, and it's actually probably one of the best pieces I've written. So uh-huh. uh, you know I'm I'm glad uh, for that. But my normal process is very intuitive. Right. Yeah, I mean, a couple things like the the thing about the titles. Man, I never can get titles until <laughs> like the very last thing. You know, uh-huh. um, I w- I was just posting on Facebook the other day how like I've been working on this piece for two percussion and computer forever, mm-hmm. and it's 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 something that I've had to like start and stop, start and stop a bunch of times because other things came up. Yeah, and this one didn't have a deadline, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it, what happens, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I just the other day, I finally, after like a year and a half of working on this piece, I finally came up with a title, and I felt very, like, very good about it. It's like, oh, it has a title now. Now I like, I'm gonna finish it. You know, yeah, I'm gonna finish uh-huh. it in the next few weeks or something. So, but um, the other thing was, uh, you know what? Can't remember it. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It's fine. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I don't know. It was something about pre-composition. Oh, uh, well. Oh, yeah. Um, with sometimes with pre-composition, I feel like I I myself do quite a bit. Mm-hmm. However, sometimes I feel like once you do like you spend so much time doing the pre-composition, and I actually really love that part. Mm-hmm. And then I get to the part where okay, it's time to put some notes down. Mm-hmm. Ugh, this feels yeah. like work. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Why can't yeah, we just take? Why can't we just take the pre-composition and throw that in front of the players? You, uh, just, just like you, you guys get yeah. it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, for me, I never. I guess I. I never. When I'm actually writing the piece, and I, I have, I have a lot of composer. Uh, sorry, I have a lot of composer friends tell me, "Oh, you know, I hate composing. I hate the process of of composition. I love it." And yeah. um. And maybe part of it is is that I don't do that pre-composition. I don't think so. Because uh, pieces where I have done pre-composition, 
uh, and then got into the piece. I still enjoy the process, yeah. but I think there's a sense of newness and discovery when I am writing just intuitively. I, I'll maybe play something at the computer or just, you know, uh, write it into uh, into finale or, or if I'm, um, you know, scoring on paper beforehand. And I think, oh, that's cool. What can I do? with How, how can yeah. I build more on that? And so um, I, I won't say, you know, it's the most, you know, intelligent way to compose, but I do find that it, it makes my process a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, and I think I, this has actually been uh, a topic I've been kind of going over with uh, a bunch of other composers recently because it's something that I'm I'm sensing a change within myself, and it's this like it's the difference between having a fully fully fleshed out concept before mm-hmm. you get to the you know notes and rhythms part versus mm-hmm. like actually you know kind of just going into the kitchen and getting your hands dirty first, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm like, I have been on that, that, um, the fully fleshed out concept side for uh, several, you know, three or four years now. And I find, mm-hmm. I, I feel like in myself, I feel this desire to like go to the other side and, yeah, and get yeah. into the kitchen first and, and uh-huh. not like, not care about, you know, Oh well, this has to mean this, and this has to mean this. No, like let's just play with some sounds for uh-huh. a while. It's, so it's anyway, you mentioned the kitchen because I don't. <laughs> that's another thing. Unless I'm baking a cake or something, I don't use recipes when I cook. Oh, all I, right. Especially even if it's some like sometimes if it's a brand new dish, yeah. Uh, but some what I'll do is I'll see, I'll look online, look at a few recipes see like what the general gist of it is and then say, uh-huh. all right this is how i'm gonna do it and just experiment so maybe that's just <laughs> the type of person i am yeah actually that, i mean that's I, I feel like that's how you're supposed to cook right i mean uh-huh. cooking is improvisation whereas baking uh-huh. is science yeah you know? exactly exactly and i've i've been on the like baking side for a long time <laughs> that's why in, you know with with my wife and i she's the one who who can cook and just like oh we have this in the refrigerator all right I'll do something uh-huh. with that uh-huh. and I'm the one like no 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 like <laughs> yeah. give me my measuring cup I want to yes. be <laughs> yeah yeah I want to be <laughs> all right so this uh, with grime you mentioned that this is a quartet for strings but it's not a typical string quartet no it, as in like two violins viola and cello it's one yeah. of one of all the four strings so it's kind of an odd ensemble yes and it's a little bit bottom heavy so what was your strategy in writing for that quartet yeah so first of all i will say that um um that was an assigned uh quartet and it's through um the fresh ink festival with uh fifth house ensemble and they call themselves this subset of fifth house they call themselves real string quartet because it's actually (laughs) all four all four strings represented in a quartet and um and so that i guess that was sort of the inspiration to write a spectral piece somehow for some reason well for a while i was interested in spectralism and i was really digging uh you know first like folks like um uh, grise and morale and so i was like okay i have equal distribution of the ranges of strings um in the ensemble. Um, and so what can I do with that? I basically have the full range of string sounds in, at my disposal. And and I am fascinated by electric guitar, even though I've never played electric guitar. I own an electric guitar, but I cannot play it. You <laughs> and, should. Um, yeah, I started like teaching myself, and then I you know, had to finish my doctorate. So... <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's I a good reason that to stop. Yeah. Um, and so 
that was sort of the the reasoning uh, behind why I chose to write the piece Grime is that it was an assigned for this festival and I figured, hey, with this equal distribution of the strings, I can do some really interesting things spectrally. Uh, and that's when the electric guitar idea sort of came to my mind. Cool. Who And we're going to hear the Fifth House Ensemble? This is uh, one member of Fifth House and three uh, participants in the uh, Fresh Ink Festival. Uh, Andrew Williams, violin. Rachel Claire-Eyed Rice on viola. Gage Amen on cello. And Andrew O'Connor on double bass. Awesome. Gage. What a yes. good name. <laughs>
Great. So we'll we'll move from one quartet to another quartet. Awesome. So this will be your quartet for saxophones, and we're mm-hmm. only going to hear the first two movements of this seven-movement piece. And can you talk about how the movements are are related to each other? Yes. So this is another piece with a lot of pre-composition, um, and it's in an arch form. And so the first movement is related to the seventh, uh, the second to the sixth, third to the fifth, and then the fourth movement is a keystone movement. Uh, and I got this idea from my teacher, Michael Fide, who also composes pieces in sort of this in this vein. And uh, and I, I, I see the fourth movement as sort of this like um, funhouse glass mirror where you look at um, one movement, but it's like a really distorted version of it on the other side of it. So movement one is this, you know, this big uh, burst and then very quiet subtone. Um, sounds and then movement seven is this big burst and then just very loud sort of like um, bagpipe clearing right. calls going through on and that happens in uh, all the movements where it's sort of like I, I call it a view through a mirror darkly <laughs> um, okay. of the other of the other movement uh, of its brother movement in a way and you said that this this piece I well I mean this piece is clearly connected to what what we would understand as minimalism or postminimalism of mm-hmm. composers like Steve Reich or Philip mm-hmm. Glass or John Adams or mm-hmm. or people like that. So, what I guess what does that music mean to you, and why are you drawn to it in your own composition? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I guess so. When I was first composing um, uh, as an undergrad, uh, my music—I <laughs> I almost hate to admit this—but my music basically sounded like bad Mahler or bad Bruckner. Uh, <laughs> it's just like, I was, I was into romanticism and that's all there was. Uh, and then for a while I got into Ives and so all my music sounded like Ives, but really sort of like John Adams and, and, uh, Philip Glass were like a gateway drug into like getting into more, I hate to say more serious, uh, contemporary music, but I guess more, uh, modern styles of, of yeah. composition and um, and sort of I've you know I've kind of strayed away from it at times but it's there's always this base of like either groove or, or, or continuous pulse or even just drawn out you know processes that I am always drawn to and um, you know I, I don't know why it is uh, it, you know i love all sorts of other music like in this piece uh lickety is also an influence uh geotensile chelsea is an influence in other pieces uh but i always do come back to to pulse for some reason and i guess just because um that's that's my favorite sort of music music with a big uh-huh. a good pulse or a, 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 a strong groove or something like that or a process that i could follow along with so mm-hmm. That's interesting to hear because uh, my own, like, uh, I guess my own development started with, if I track it, it would be Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, mm-hmm. Aaron Copeland, Steve Reich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the so almost, I mean, Mahler was kind of in there, but uh-huh, you know, uh-huh, I gravitated uh-huh. more towards Shostakovich for big orchestral pieces. Uh-huh. But, um, but yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear that that that's kind of like. Well, I mean, I only have two data points for this, but at least <laughs> among those two data points, it's a pretty consistent trend, you know, romanticism to minimalism in some yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to be hearing 
the oh well we should talk about the uh the second movement as well because yes. we're gonna the first movement you said starts with that um the loud call and then the the subtones and then the second movement what what happens in that one it basically um starts with this um so the whole quartet is based around this this tricord and if you're nerdy like me it's zero three five <laughs> it's uh it's basically the first three notes of a pentatonic scale um uh sorry Yes, no, no, not the first three. Uh, one, three, and then the fourth note of a pentatonic scale. And so um, th- th- you hear this trichord throughout the piece, and the second movement is really just all about this trichord. Uh, it's, it, it finds variations of it, um, and it just it's very sort of Philip Glassian. Uh, but then, uh, unfortunately, we won't be hearing this sixth movement. If you go to my website, you can hear it. Uh, it sort of goes to the Steve Reich side, um, specifically pendulum music. And if you know that mm. piece, you know you hang yep. up the microphones above the speakers, and it's very it's it is process driven, but it's not rational. It's not pr- predictive uh, because right. it's you know it's it's run by gra- gravity, uh, and that's what that movement sounds like. And it's all like slap tongue, and but eventually the slap tongue has more pitch to it and it turns out to be that tri-chord. Um, okay. So that's sort of the another version of the mirror there with two and six. Uh, we're going to be hearing the Hakta Quartet and who are the, who I should say, who were the members of yes, the Hakta Quartet? Uh, so this is Om Sirivastava on soprano, Jonathan Torsak on alto, uh, Katie Stesman on tenor, and Winbo Yin on baritone. <laughs> Thank you. 
in your writing about grime, and, and you actually mentioned just now that um, you you had influences of Chelsea and Glass, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in the quartet you had like Ligeti and mm-hmm. Glass and Reich. So you're coming mm-hmm. in composition from actually kind of a very postmodern attitude. Yeah, yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. can you can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So like I mentioned before, um, Charles Ives used to be a really big influence for me. And a lot of my music sounded like Charles Ives. Uh, but uh, I was finding that there were some sort of some sorts of expression where I wasn't able to reach with that style. And uh, of course, Ives can, uh, especially in his three movements uh, for new in New England and the Housatonic at Stockbridge is beautiful. But I found that I couldn't write beautiful music in sort of this very Ivesy and postmodern, uh, and uh-huh. I guess Ives is like a proto postmodernist. Yeah, you know. Um, and so um, that's that's still found in my work, but I guess without sort of the sense of irony that postmodernism often has. I'm not trying to say, "Oh, look, here's this Baroque style. Oh, now let's do these really atonal thing." Uh-huh. I'm trying to. Um, melded into a single unified voice for myself and uh that's one thing about my music uh a lot of times people want to strive for originality and i decided a few years ago there's no such thing (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know everything everything you can think of under the sun has been done by someone uh and so I, you know, Stravinsky said, you know, good composers borrow, great composers steal. And so I know that my music is inspired, you know, in this part, like, oh, this is the Ligeti part. Oh, this is sort of the John Adams A.E. part. Uh, and so I've decided just, you know, not to back away from that, but what can I learn from these styles and how can I, you know, uh, synthesize it into my own voice as a composer? So... I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that totally answers my question because mm-hmm. um, sometimes I guess sometimes in in like a post like you were saying, you know, let's let's kind of ironically juxtapose these against yeah. each other, and and if we're meant like if we're kind of meant to hear them as direct references to the composer, so there's like kind of a meta art going yeah. on here. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, you totally answered my question. So mm-hmm. so. Let's talk about Jonestown. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I I posted on uh Facebook the other day that I was doing some research in preparation for this and I had I had never like I I didn't know Jonestown. I'd certainly heard the phrase like drink yeah. the Kool-Aid. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I like I knew that that was a thing, but I didn't realize that this is where it came from and I also uh-huh. didn't realize the extent to like the incredible loss of life for this so yeah yeah first of all i mean this this story is just horrifying and if the for the listener if you don't know anything about jonestown go look up jonestown because there's a lot on it and horrifying pictures and it's just yikes and um i think that as a parent you know reading that that the i mean the story is essentially well you you should tell the story you wrote yeah, the so um yeah exactly so the idea and and you know f- feel free to stop me because of years of research into jonestown i can i get into this <laughs> and like i know all these like yeah i go on these different tangents but the basic story of jonestown is uh they were a church they were called the people's temple 
uh, and they were in San Francisco. They moved a couple places, but they're at the time of their their demise. They they had a headquarters in San Francisco, and uh, they were also a basically a communist cult. Uh, they uh, were very into liberal and democratic politics in San Francisco. Uh, you know the the thing is, people like if you were doing some if you needed to get out protest or the vote uh, for a liberal policy in San Francisco, they knew Jim Jones and the People's Temple were the people you called. Uh, that and they got out and they uh, were community activists and they did a lot of good actually for the community. Jim Jones built uh, these um, uh, retirement homes for the elderly that had better standards than the ones uh, for in San Francisco. The church was integrated. It had a very large African American uh, community, and so there was a couple of reasons why Jim Jones moved the the sort of bulk of his operations from San Francisco to Guyana. Uh, two of them were, they were planning to form this commune away from America to get away from capitalism, but also he sort of rushed it because he started to get investigated uh, for tax fraud and yeah. other and other <laughs> things. And so um, he said, we got to go now. And so they went and spent a, uh, I forgot exactly how many, uh, months they were there before uh, all the um, the bad things happened. But uh, basically, uh, family members started c- contacting Representative Leo Ryan, uh, who was the uh, member of Congress for the San Francisco Bay Area. And so he said, I will go down and inve- investigate and see what's going on. And while he was there, uh, at first it seemed great. Uh, there's a quote of him saying, you know, I know there's been questions about your operations, but what I can tell some of you believe this is the greatest thing that happened in your lives. And, um, but the next day, uh, people started coming up to them and saying, can you please take us home on your plane? We want to go home. We want to go back and see our families. He's holding us here. And Jim Jones said, whoever wants to go home can go home. Uh, and, but then, so these people were with Leo Ryan were boarding this plane and people came out of the jungle and started shooting them. And these were people, uh, Jim Jones said he did not send them, but they were a part of Jim Jones's sort of militia for Jonestown. Um, and he said, you know, okay, uh, these people, they went out against my, my word and they shot the congressman. So what we're going to have to do is if we want to, if we don't want the government to kill us all, we should just commit revolutionary suicide and drink this Kool-Aid. Uh, now, another part of that is it's interesting that they had practiced this yeah. this revolutionary suicide a exactly. couple times. They knew what would happen, what was going to happen before, uh, you know, even all this with Representative Ryan happened. So, uh, you know, it didn't come out of the blue for them. And he basically uh, brainwashed them. And over time, you know, I guess sort of, I don't want to use the word educated, but brainwashed them into thinking, if I ever have to commit suicide for this cause, that's the right thing to do. Right. And so it's it's a it's a crazy story. Um, and it's a lot of people um, who weren't alive during that time. They're not familiar with all the details. Uh, but when you do get into the details, it's it's actually not this sort of footnote in history. It's really connected to the the seventies and a lot of the things that were going on. Um, you know, in that time, uh, yeah. especially with race relations and economics and things like that. So, yeah. 
So, I mean, as a parent, reading that, you know, 900 people uh, committed suicide. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a little, uh, from what I've read, it's a little bit up in the air in, in terms of whether you call it suicide or murder. Yeah, exactly. You some know? people were basically, yeah, some people were murdered. They were forced to, to drink. And, of course, the children, uh, you, you could definitely call yes. them murder because they were forced exactly. to drink. Yeah. And there were just an enormous amount of children. And as mm-hmm. a parent... I, I've found that since I have become a parent, any any story or movie or or news news or whatever where there's a child that is very young and and dying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's just like the worst feeling ever, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, before before becoming a parent, certainly that was like you know you never want to see a child yeah. dying, but it. It hits you in this new way. And when I read that, you know, mothers were syringing poison into their mm-hmm. infants' mouths to yeah. get them to drink the poison willingly. Like the yeah. very first person that went up and drank the poison was a mother with her infants. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that was that's just completely horrifying. So mm-hmm. this uh this is an opera you wrote and you clearly you had a lot to work with, yeah. you know, <laughs> emotionally. But what what drew you to the story from the first? So it's it's funny you brought up the drink the Kool-Aid comment. Um, it was 2008. Uh, we had the presidential election going on, Obama versus McCain. And I kept hearing people um, uh, people on the right saying that Obama supporters were drinking the Kool-Aid. And, uh-huh. I, and I, I kept like, what is that phrase about? Why do they yeah. keep saying this? And then, of course, I came across Jonestown. Now, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, the phrase actually originated before Jonestown. Uh, but of course, uh, the, the big, um, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever its origins were, Jones, Jonestown sort of, you know, surpassed that in, in notoriety. Um, and and, and we're not knocking Kool-Aid because I didn't actually use Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. Exactly. No one's going to say, ah, drink the Flavor-Aid. Exactly. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, and so, um, yeah, I started reading about Jonestown and this is how my weird brain works. I was like, oh, that's, that's disturbing. And then the next thought was that would make a good opera. (laughs) And so I had knew I wanted to do this project for a long time. It was just a a matter of when I was going to do it. And of course, uh, the excerpt is just the, um, the epilogue, but throughout the opera, there is no character for Jim Jones. Uh, you just hear his voice um, and the original recordings that they made of him um, uh, throughout the, his time of of being pastor of the People's Temple. So uh, sometimes what's what's interesting is that like a singer will say something and Jones will respond and the singer will respond back. So it's like you're re-witnessing the events that actually happened. Did you use um, in the in the other acts for the opera? Did you use parts of the the uh, so called like the death tape? Yeah, I did. So what happened was I knew uh, there were reports of um, they had these meetings every now and then called White Nights, and right. uh, and one of those White Nights they practiced the the drinking the Kool Aid, and um, I, w- I had a lot of help from um, this organization in California called the Jonestown Institute. Um, and they collected all the tapes, um, from the FBI and they digitized them and all, and all that. And I asked them, I was like, do you have any recordings of these white knights? I can't find any, uh, white knight where they actually practiced the, the suicide. And he said, no, I, I don't, it, 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 
you know, people with multiple witness, ah, multiple witnesses did say it happened, uh, but there are no, you know, recordings of it. So I, I fudged a little. I did take recordings from the, um, the final suicide and yeah. put them earlier in the opera. So it sounds as if, right. um, you know, he's saying this is, we're going to actually do this. And then when it's over, he said, okay, that Kool-Aid was not actually poison. It was right. a test. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, intense. <laughs> it's really, really heavy. Intense, um, yes. So, uh, what uh, what did you do in terms of uh, a libretto? I wrote it myself. Oh, uh, you wrote it yourself. But okay. it ha- it does have a lot of um, text adapted. So, of course, uh, in addition to those digitized tapes, they did transcripts of everything, and so um, some of the text it was is basically more singable versions of what thing people things uh they actually said. And then um since they were they were sort of a church, it actually turned out that um um later on Jim Jones started saying, you know what, there is no God. Um, you know, but if you need to worship someone as a god, you can feel free to worship me. And so <laughs> you know, uh, and oh so he was god. he was actually sort of an atheist of sorts. Uh, and then, of course, you know, he was a communist. So I use uh, excerpts of the Bible. I use um, quotes by communist leaders. And, of course, uh, y- you know, I couldn't help using some Dickinson <laughs> every now and then. <laughs> Just to bring it full uh, circle. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The first aria sang by the same character that sings in the epilogue is actually Hope is a Thing with Feathers uh, by Dickinson. Uh, because there was uh, a lot of hope in this community, especially by... Christine, the person who you can hear on the tape saying, um, she said, uh, as long as there's life, there's hope. That's my faith. And um, so I decided to make this whole opera about hope, but then how, you know, it could be crushed by, you know, circumstances beyond your control. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hear the epilogue. And what is the what's the epilogue about? So uh, when they when the FBI and the, the the armed forces came to Jonestown, they found this letter uh, it was unsigned, but uh, people believe it was written by the historian of Jonestown. Um, and he basically is talking about how, you know, if you find this letter, please remember uh, what happened. Read all the books, read all the tapes, and, and record this history and tell it. And it, this what happened here has to be understood and it has to be, you know, um, uh, you know, talked about. And, and we hope that you understood what we did here. And so it's it's sort of a, a last note of hope, but a, a very sad and bitter hope that people will understand why they did this.
I'm assuming this recording came from the stage reading you did at yes. CCM. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can, if you're interested in seeing the whole thing, you the whole thing is up on YouTube, right? Yes, it is. So just, go, uh, just YouTube Evan Williams and Jonestown, and it'll come right <laughs> up for you. So uh, we've come to the 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 big question, as Andrew Martin Smith has now dubbed it. Uh, the last question, the the big question, is how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so my parents, neither of them are trained musicians. Uh, my dad is a computer programmer. My mom is a pharmacist. And so um, my first exposure to orchestral music was uh, John Williams' scores in Star Wars. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I'm wearing a Star Wars shirt, yep, <laughs> as yep. you can see now. <laughs> uh, uh, me and my dad, uh, we love Star Wars. And, you know, in addition to the great, you know, cinematic uh, movie it was, I started listening to the music and really loving the music. And so when I first, um, you know, decided to compose music, I thought I wanted to be a film composer uh-huh. um, and, and work in film. Uh, but obviously that didn't, that didn't happen. Um, but a lot of people, when they hear my music, I don't like this adjective, this cinematic <laughs> adjective, but I guess I get it because it's, it's, you know, my music has an emotional drive to it. Um, but it's not always, in fact, it's rarely, um, programmatic, but mm-hmm. it does have sort of a emotional arc to it. So I, I guess my, my first exposure to music was, was, was film and of course uh, play trombone and beginning band and started composing when I was in like the eighth grade stupid little pieces but uh, never stopped <laughs> <laughs> you know I've been uh, since uh, since the new Star Wars have started coming out um, mm-hmm. I've been uh, I've been singing a lot of the Star Wars themes to my mm-hmm. uh, my youngest daughter right now you know like mm-hmm. You know, kind of hold her up and bounce her, and then sing, sing the themes. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that'll be a lasting impact on her. Uh, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> it's not hopefully. a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, I want you to talk about the the project you're currently working on, and you have a funding a funding campaign for it. What's the title? It's for so the the name of the piece is called Dead White Man Music. <laughs> and Great it title. Is a, yes, thank you. It is a concerto for harpsichord and chamber ensemble. And uh, the idea is uh, basically when we look at the canon of classical music, as you probably know, it's filled with dead white European males. Uh, And so someone like me, I wonder, you know, is there a place for me in classical music? And even even if there is, what should my influences be? Because uh, you can look at classical music and think, oh, is this just a art form for and by you know, wealthy white males. And, you know, my political leanings <laughs> sort of are at odds <laughs> at odds with that. Um, and so it's it's really just unpacking that, that idea. Um, and it's, it doesn't really give an answer to the question, uh, but just sort of, you know, looks at Bach and say, okay, what this is what I can do with this Bach motive, you know, more than, you know, hundreds of years later. And then Dahl and, and the idea of the Takata and the whole idea of the harpsichord as this like very dead instrument, <laughs> uh, but but used in this very modern context. So we, me uh, and Urban Playground Chamber Orchestra, they're the commissioning ensemble where we did this uh, Indiegogo funding campaign 
to raise the money, and I was really excited with the um, the support that we received for the project. Uh-huh. So, yes. So if people want to check out, uh, they can go to Indiegogo and search for Dead White Man Music? Yes, and I also have a, a blog on my website about it um, that you can read a little bit more about my my reasoning and my thoughts about the piece. Speaking of your website, uh, your website is... EvanWilliamsMusic.info Dot .info? Yes, uh, so EvanWilliamsMusic.com is taken by someone. It may or may not be a crappy Kentucky bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) People writing songs about bourbon. Yeah, I don't know why they felt they had to, you know, take that domain, but they did. (laughs) Okay, and then Uh, uh, what are your, where can people find you? You're on, uh, you have a channel on YouTube. Yep, uh, my channel on YouTube, I believe, is Evan Williams Music. Twitter is Evan Williams Muse. Couldn't fit the IC in it. And then, uh, so it's like, it's almost like Latin, Evan Williams Moose. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, uh, on Facebook, it's Evan Williams Composer. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. And we look forward to having you in Adjective and yes, doing more yeah. stuff. I'm very excited. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.